This is Aliens and Artists. Part one of our conversation with Emily Trim and Luigi Venditelli. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. On an otherwise normal day in 1994, Emily Trim was on the playground with 60 or so other kids at the REL school in Zimbabwe. A craft landed and non-human entities emerged. They approached Emily and other children. She was face to face with the beings for a sustained period of time. They communicated with her telepathically. The messages were disturbing. This event should have changed the world. It radically changed the lives of the children on the playground that day. In Emily's case, she went on to create many thousands of works of art depicting her contact experience that day. Luigi Venditelli is her friend and also a longtime researcher in the field of ufology. He's been instrumental in making Emily's artwork available to the public. We begin with Emily's account of that day in 1994. It was a regular day, just, you know, the sun was shining. It was a beautiful African landscape and it was school as per usual. We all got dropped off that aerial and we began our day. Our days usually began with academics in the morning and then leading to elective courses during the afternoon. And we were all in our classrooms when recess was about to begin. And the teachers let us out for recess and we were just playing on the playground, enjoying the weather, enjoying the friends. And I was with my friend Liesl and we were playing a game on the boundary logs of the property. They had, instead of like chain link fencing, they used tree logs to border the property. And the kids used to play games on the logs. We didn't have too much of a playground back then, so imagination was really something that kept us going. And we were hopping across the logs and there was a high pitch frequency as well as a flash in the sky and it caught our attention and all of a sudden it was like a movie scene just started playing out there was panic there was chaos there were kids screaming it was like time did not exist in that moment you can imagine children flooding to one area of the playground we were all looking at this craft now i was on the logs the perimeter base which was closest to the actual craft and there were these beings they came out of the craft and they started to mimic the children and they followed my like as if time wasn't existing and as if i was hopping in midair at the moment that the craft and the beings came out they were right in front of us in front of liesel and myself now i was not the only child that experienced a communication with the beings, but Liesl and my side can only speak to my own. Liesl and myself were frozen and time had stopped and it was like we were in this communication immediately with this being. And the only way that I can describe it is as it being neurological and telepathic. It was like a slideshow of images being flooded throughout my head and I don't really recall too much of what the images are I remember the last one being very explosive 
what I got most out of that was the emotional response because there were so many emotions that were flooding through me. It was sadness. It was joy. It was elation. It was fear, you know, mm. a fear of the unknown just flooding throughout because you've got to imagine you're an eight-year-old child and you're seeing something you've never seen before in your life. The first responses are going to be fight, flight, fear. So your, your brain and your body are going through major shock at that time. Not a lot of people understood that about the aerial event. A lot of the times the children would get questioned about the beings, but not the emotional impact that it actually had as they changed and developed into adults. But it was something I would not say I wouldn't want to relive. I would definitely have some questions myself for the creature uh, this time around, that's for sure. For what length of time did this transmission of images, sensations, and emotions occur? Maybe that's a tough question given that you felt time itself to be altered. Right. So, logistically speaking, recess was about 15 minutes long. So, the event in real time was happening in about 15 minutes. But in terms of what it was actually feeling like and impacting, it's really hard to say some days. I feel like it was extremely quick because these beings are capable of moving at speeds and rates that we are not, you know? There are some days I feel like it was very quick, and then there are some days where I, I actually feel like it was, it could have been, a lot more could have happened that day, a lot more could have transpired that day. So I have some mixed feelings over how long that duration actually occurred because it's really hard as you're processing the experience when you've blocked it out of your head for so long and then to open that door again to relive that experience a lot of things start to transpire that a lot of questions start to come out and I won't always have the answers for mm. those questions unfortunately I'm left with a lot of unanswered questions you know, I do think a lot more actually happened that day than what the children actually know. And I think they, they block out a lot of information for specific reasons, maybe just to keep us safe, because they can understand the neurological patterns in our bodies and in our minds. I think it's too much for us to take in all at once. People are very familiar with greys, tall whites, mantids, etc., in terms of morphology, what type of beings were these? Well, these beings were what I would say. It's interesting because, Stuart, I wasn't in the ufology mindset growing up. I only had knowledge based on what happened to me. And they were shorter. So as I wouldn't have had the terminology to depict them as a gray, you know, back as a child, I wouldn't have had that terminology to, you know, you use the word that you, you were familiar with that can describe it as quickly as possible. But I think of them as they were, they were shorter, they were around my height. So I think typical gray is what we were dealing with that day, but they were bright, they were shining. 
So they actually had a translucent appearance to them. They weren't solid gray by any means. So I guess the word I could use is they had an aura. You mentioned the sense that more may have transpired that day, but that also there's natural variation in the experiencer's recall. Can anything be said about what that something more might have entailed? Is the implication that the event was longer or, or included other elements? I can say what I felt might have happened to me. I have no idea what the rest of the children, how they processed this experience and what their thoughts are on the, the whole event. But in my processing, I believe that we were taken to the craft. It's not something that I can 100% say happened, but throughout my processing and my come to understanding of this, I do feel as though we were, we were taken. Yeah, that's and the best I can describe that. Is there any sense of what the experience aboard the craft might have been? That part, to me, I can't really go into too much detail on because I, I don't have those answers. I think as I process this experience, more comes out as I go. But I do think we were taken. What I do remember during the experience on the logs was one of the hands reached out towards us. So that part of my testimony makes me come to conclusions that they were reaching out to us to go somewhere. But every child is going to have a different recollection of what happened to them that particular day. But that is my particular recollection for the account. The visual that arises for me in hearing of your experience with the time dilation, the manner in which the memories unpack in a kaleidoscopic fashion, it seems as the event, or at least the memories, possess a prismatic quality, multifaceted, multidimensional. Is that a fair description of the way in which the memories feel when you reflect on that day? Yeah, it does. Yeah. These memories... They're challenging to bring forward because not all of the memory was, it, like there was a lot of fear. A lot of the positivity comes through in my artwork, I think. A lot of people can see it based on color and light and subject matter. The fear was something I had to push through, really push through, which was very challenging for me. I think Luigi can speak a little bit yeah. on that. This is kind of like the place where Emily and I connected a lot during this time where she was recalling or reconnecting to past memories. And this is where I started seeing the profound communication that had happened as opposed to a simplistic view of communication. And this is where the emotions come in. And, and we all know that emotions are extremely complex in many cases. And complex not only in understanding them, but expressing them. It felt almost like every memory came with a download of emotion. So Emily was going through these incredibly difficult times. Many times I was there and we worked things together and I was doing everything I could to support and to make sure that she could feel non-threatened and safe and in, in, a, in, a, in a way where 
If it wasn't comfortable, don't go there. It's not something that I could say I knew what I was doing. It's just my human side just mm -hmm. coming out and saying, let's help. There were periods that were very dark, and Emily can attest to that. I guess those things are things that the second you fall into the vortex of the dark emotion, it's harder to get out of the dark emotion than it is to get out of the positive one. That is something that was very challenging for Emily and also for me in terms of how to make sure that I could help as much as I could to bring as much light as I could into the context of our friendship. And you could see that there was, it was challenging at times and I would be so emotionally attached to it. I care so much about Emily that I would see her go through these moments and it would actually affect me. And I could- and, It's like and the could, recall was happening in real time. Yeah. Like as though I was living that emotion and living that experience in real time as though the shock, the overall shock was like, it was that very day. It was very, yeah. to be honest with you, I went through quite a up and down roller coaster of when I had a second experience, which was very uh, profound, that triggered the very first experience that I had, which opened my doors inside my mind to all of that floodgate. I had all these barriers built up and every barrier that I had just got shattered yeah. in the moment. Sorry, Luigi, I didn't mean to interrupt no, no, you. No, 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 no absolutely. That in there. That attunes to the way in which contact in turns shatters and also transfigures consciousness. I want to ask you about the second experience you had, but before we move on from the Ariel School event, how did the experience on the playground conclude that day? How it all transpired was this event happened on a Friday. The kids went home for a couple of days for the weekend and had to process this event and tell their parents and try and make sense of what had just occurred. And then it was like, on the Monday, we returned back to school. We had news broadcasters and interviewers. And that's when John Mack had come down and Cynthia Hind. And it was really, as much as everybody was interested, it was a little bizarre because as a child, you're eight years old and you're being put into a classroom and being told to draw what you have seen. And it was a little a whirlwind at the time because we had no clue. If you had asked me who John Mack was, I wouldn't have had an idea of who John Mack was. You know, I was eight. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I was, I was eight. Cynthia, I mean, these, these names wouldn't have meant a thing to me. It was more like the children were just like, hi, something massive just happened and right. we don't know how to right. process, process it, you know? So, that's, that's kind of how that all transpired. And uh, I didn't actually get to stay in Africa. My parents are missionaries, mm. so I didn't actually get to stay in Africa much longer. I moved at the end of 94 back to Canada at that point. I kind of got plucked out of the school system of Ariel and put into the Canadian school system. And I blocked that event out pretty quickly because you were dealing with culture shock. You were dealing with you know, a new school and new friends and 
you're not going to be opening up to a bunch of new people about an extraterrestrial. And it, right. it was, it was, it was hard for me because I didn't have that uh, opportunity to really process that. When you look back on the reaction from adults, professionals, broadcasters, journalists, in all that followed the event, what do you wish would have been different in how grown-ups responded or did not respond? Did they do a good job? Did they believe you? Did they provide the conditions for the event to be properly addressed? Or did things go awry? That's a hard question for me. I guess they did the best that they could with what they had available for them. Uh, John Mack was wonderful. Cynthia Hyde was wonderful. When it comes down to newscasters and broadcasters, people just want, what does it look like? And it was very bizarre because we were getting our sanity questioned at such a young age. And that, to me, was probably the worst feeling I had ever felt. You just wanted to say, like, hi, would somebody believe me, you know, as a child? And then, not that the world did this, but it felt as though those children got written about and talked about and movies and all sorts of different things that happened with these children. Not one of them asked for anything, but we, in a sense, tried to move on the best that we could with what we were given. And I think a lot of the kids wanted closure from the event. To me, it was heartbreaking to have a group of kids who were so innocent be labeled as insane from the ages of 8 to 12, you know, and that was just heartbreaking for me. So if, if anything I could change, that would have been something I would have liked to have seen done differently. It's almost incomprehensible the way that 60-some bright, healthy children all experienced such sustained contact together in the middle of the day. It's one of the most profound events in human history. These kids with a total absence of guile go through that, and then they have broadcasters question the veracity of their accounts. I'm just agreeing with you. It was a little sad. I would also like to add, having been somewhat involved in this with Emily, and having seen, having heard, number one, and having met or seen people question or attack the credibility, the testimonies, whether of Emily or of other uh, kids, is something that I would, just as a little side note, when I met her, we actually met at a MUFON conference. And when I went up to her, there was like a crowd of people in front of her. It was like a, a tsunami of questions. I felt a need to protect her. It's, it's mm -hmm. weird. It was like, a, it was instinctive. I was there and she was shaking because she had so many people asking her questions that were so personal and so invasive that I had to get there. I remember turning around and telling people, can you just calm down? Because there's people that are genuinely interested but don't realize the damage they could do by overkilling it with questions. And then you have people who are genuinely not believers who will do anything in their power to bring down a person who is just simply stating an experience. Having seen that, experiencing that second degree, because it's not happening to me, it's happening to her, I could just imagine how difficult that can be. 
it's always something that Emily would bring back to people saying, I was just a little girl playing in a schoolyard and something happened. I was not interested in aliens or UFO. You know, this is not something I was pursuing. And then the pain of having some people take the story and try to tell it for you or commandeer it. Can you speak to that piece a bit? Yeah, that's also a little, like, half the times people want, they expect to hear something from you. They want to hear something from you. But then when you actually tell them your truth, they don't want to hear it because they want the experience to be what it is for them. And that's a little confusing and conflicting to me because, you know, half the times I just, I don't even know what to say anymore because do you want to hear what actually (laughs) happened or do you want to write about it the way that you're going to write about it? It makes it challenging, but that's kind of the nature of the beast. And I've just kind of come to terms with it. I had one individual. I try not to focus on these things. Like there's going to be people that believe there's going to be people that don't believe that's okay. If you're interested, that's fantastic too. He was obviously at this conference that I had done in Arizona and I had written a short story on the butterfly and it was an environmental story. It was about climate change and I'm an artist, so I'm very creative too. So I had written this story and he wrote a whole thing about how I believe in magical butterflies and how I'm crazy and the guy is using my name to get famous. Like, it's nuts. using my story and he's writing about it like he knows me and it was like buddy I'm not even going to give you two cents of my time because all your facts are incorrect you don't even know my age you don't even you barely even know my name but you're using my story to get your 15 minutes of fame by putting me down it's interesting so that's why part of me Stuart was very hesitant on accepting to do any other interviews because it's hard for me It completely makes sense. I share Luigi's sentiment around the sensitivity and perceptive capacities of artists, the unique position artists occupy in relationship to contact because of their ability to create mediating works that allow others to gain some understanding or empathy, how valuable that is, and then how vulnerable and exposed that can make the artist to the type of things you're describing. I wouldn't blame you if you never did another interview. It's hard enough to do interviews on artwork, period. Add non-human entities into the mix, and it's an Olympic task. Thank you for being willing to share. I want to ask you what that second experience was. Is it related to the Ariel event, or are the two distinct? They're all personal. To a certain extent, everybody kind of thinks as we were just in our last conversation about the expectation that this event is for me as opposed to for everybody else. The second experience was a spiritual experience for me. And it was definitely, again, it was extraterrestrial. It was the figurehead of a lion, a bright aura of yellow light. And, and the face kept changing back and forth between a lion and a man. And I was so profoundly blown away it was very personal. I wept and I cried in front of this being. It just told me, I'm always with you. That experience triggered my onset of my art. It was like instinctual, draw it out so you can see it. And then just these comforting reminders that I'm always with you. I'm always with you. And that uh, was 
um, I think something that was meant for me as opposed to everybody else. (laughs) Do you feel that second experience further empowered you to reflect and examine the contact event at Ariel School? Yeah, it literally prepared me for war. I don't know how to describe it. Like I, cause I went through a war, um, at war and back. The experience itself was beautiful. But then after that, that was when, oh, I went through hospitalizations. I was in and out of hospital, like help. And at some days I, I couldn't even speak. My father had to take me to the hospital. I lost all facial movement and couldn't voice anything. I was literally living a war. I was in a war zone. I don't even know how to, to describe it, but I was going through fear and paranoia and all these awful, like I would never wish this upon anybody. It was like the entire time, like you just asked, I did feel as though that those two experiences definitely made me stronger. I'm just going to use the word, they are constantly reminding me, you're on the right track. You're doing what you should be doing. Keep going. All these kind of positive reminders. And they told me at the time that I was going to be walking through a fire. And metaphorically, that was what I went through. They told me all the time we will be with you. So you're going to be going through the worst shit storm of your life, but we're going to be with you. And that's literally what happened to me. I went through the worst shit storm I'd ever been through in my life. And the entire time, I just felt comfort knowing I was not alone. It sounds like the bulk of what was conveyed to you by the non-human beings in the Ariel School event was around ecological disaster, the degradation of our biosphere. Do you feel that was shared with you in order that you would share the message with the wider world? Or was it more personally directed to you individually? It's like somebody was just consistently saying to me, use your voice. Use your voice. It doesn't mean that I am the be-all and end-all, but they wanted me to use my voice. And that was the most challenging thing for me because I was like, no, I don't want to. I didn't know how else to use my voice because every time I used my voice, I was considered crazy. I was considered lunacy. Art was like the only place I got to be myself. The only place that I got to express myself and my voice. That was where I got to be free. But every day it's use your voice, use your voice. I like poetry, so there's this one poem that I stick to, and it's called Bright in the Corner Where You Are. I think that's the most important thing that you can do. I'm not trying to be the biggest and the best of anything, but I think brightening the corner where you are makes the world of an impact. And if everybody were to brighten the corner where they are, we would start seeing some bigger impacts on the planet. To be clear, I don't ask that because I've ever experienced you being grandiose. It's more that there are so few consistencies in contact, but one of them is this pressing message. You're destroying the biosphere. Stop with the biocidic mania. That creates this bind because there's such urgency for the experiencer, but no individual can bring about the transformation needed. 
And that makes one wonder what it means to be healthy in a sick world. How did you get there? What are some strategies that you could share with other experiencers? Never give up. Definitely never give up. I can't repeat how many times I almost died during this life of mine based on these experiences. Never give up. Seek support. Build a support team around you that is strong, that you don't need quantity, you need quality, and that are going to be there for you, your team. It's not about validation. Letting go of validation makes your world so much happier. You don't need validation in order to be you. You already are you and stay grounded. Being grounded is the most important thing because during these experiences, you express something extraterrestrial and out there. You know, your mind takes you to that place. So staying grounded is the most important thing and valuable to remain balanced. And your thought process, you start to rewire your brain. So rewiring the brain helps with remaining balanced and healthy in this world because we are inundated with a lot of junk coming at us. And just don't give up, you know, just don't give up. In terms of the conduit, the channel that allows for communication with these non-human entities, do you feel like that is always open and available when needed? And has that openness partly been facilitated by the work you've done personally? Yes. I think there is a deeper connection, as rational as I can say it. It's like prayer. You know, neurological communication with a greater entity, allowing yourself to have that kind of communication frees you. So it's an understanding, basic understanding of what prayer is like in terms of neurological communication. It sounds fringe when I say I am connected to extraterrestrial beings, but it's not that I am Seeing that doesn't happen because I get high-pitched frequencies. I get contact when it just comes. It just happens when it, when it happens. But I refer to it as prayer. I don't seek actively seek out alien or extraterrestrial or creature contact. I don't actively do that. But I feel as though they are aware of my presence at all times. Fascinating. You had mentioned both of your parents are missionaries. Sometimes the metaphysical implications of contact are compatible with people's existing religious or spiritual worldviews. Other times it's irreconcilable. It can cause upheaval. Can I just ask generally, as a child of missionaries, what has it been like to integrate these events within your family background? Well, at first... I left the church. I said to my parents, I remember I was 14, and I said to my parents, I respect what you do as missionaries, and I have utmost respect for my parents, and I will never be able to live up to the people that they are because they are wonderful. I left the church at 14, and I said to my parents, I respect what you do, and then I had my second experience. I kind of closed out spirituality. I, I respected what my family did, but I kind of went through a bit of a rebelling phase because I said to them, 
I don't want to be a fake person. And I felt as though I was being fake because what conflicted was I didn't understand how, how can we have this extraterrestrial experience happen and we aren't in being inclusive of this experience in the church community because I'm still a believer in God. I still believe in an omnipresence that does exist, universe, creator, whatever many names that exist. So I believe in it, but I had such a hard time saying, how do I fit? So I left the church and then I ended up, as I had my second experience, I ended up finding that I, be I became even more spiritual after the second encounter. And I found it influenced my artwork. Like it, it was coming out of my artwork naturally, just spirituality and different types of emblems and my connectedness just flourished. When you made that pronouncement, when you shared with your parents what you had experienced, did they believe you? Just as you had told them, I respect what you do and who you are, but I'm going to go a different direction for a while. Was there a period of shock for them as well, needing to synthesize it all? They understood. They never forced. My parents are not the type of ministers or spiritual individuals that force feed information to people. So they understood that this journey was going, the spiritual journey is going to be a spiritual journey of your own and you will come to faith. You know, you don't force faith, you come to faith. So I didn't really get a lot of pushback. They wanted to ask me questions to make sure that everything was fine and that I was okay because mental health is the most important aspect in your development and well-being. So they didn't push back per se, but we didn't talk about it a lot in our family, only because my brother was traumatized. He went through some very frightening times. He was older. He was at the school when the event happened. So it was my brother and myself who both experienced this in our family. And we didn't talk about it because it traumatized my brother. He was older than I was, so it was more scary for him. I was a bit more accepting of it, and he was more traumatized. So we didn't discuss it too much because we tried to keep it so that my brother wasn't being re-traumatized over and over and over again. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Emily Trim and Luigi Ventitelli. Check our show notes to find Emily's Instagram and her other artwork on Facebook. The Romanian countryside, night. An eight-year-old boy has just escaped from his house in the hope of avoiding a beating for misbehavior. His name is Yanel Talpazan. Talpazan reported that that night in the Romanian countryside, a strange hovering shape slowly descended from the sky, enveloping him in a celestial blue light. He was taken aboard a craft where he underwent procedures and was the recipient of ineffable knowledge of the cosmos, the craft he was aboard, propulsion systems, and electromagnetic forces. He would spend the rest of his life creating paintings, drawings, and sculptures, obsessively depicting UFOs and their mechanical anatomy. He often created images showing the craft in transparent cross-sections, 
which revealed their inner components with detailed descriptions in Romanian. Talpazan was untrained as an artist, part of the outsider movement. He lived and created from an otherworldly paradox. He was at once possessed of the need to convey his experience, and yet he also sensed there was no medium, linguistic or artistic, sufficient to communicate the event. He made innumerable attempts to display properties of motion and speed too exotic for two or even three-dimensional canvases. His life contained other remarkable characteristics. He escaped from Soviet Romania in 1974, making a heroic swim by himself across the Danube River into Yugoslavia. He ended up in a refugee camp, but against the odds and circumstances, he made it to the United States as a political refugee. Talpazan had two shows at a Soho gallery in 1996. His star appeared to be climbing, but then he evanesced into obscurity again. He wanted NASA to work with his painting as both scientific diagram and artwork. He also hoped that when he was discovered, he'd become known by the name Adrian da Vinci. He picked that moniker. No one knows why, but who are we to argue? So here's to you, Adrian da Vinci. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one sessions with me, Stuart Davis, on creativity, spirituality, and contact experiences. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session. Glass of a frozen lake. 